0: Father God, as we look at a text that is really almost 3,000 years old, from the 9th century B.C., we know, Father, that experientially, as we look at the Old Testament, it's as relevant as if it were written today, and indeed it is. <coughs> we pray, Father, that you would make this text relevant in our lives, that we would be impacted by it and changed, and that you would guide what I say and what we hear, and most of all, that we would rightly divide your inspired and errant word. Meet us, we ask. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Many years ago, Betty Ann and I moved to a Houston suburb called Lamarck where we joined a very small group of people in planting or replanting a church. It was a group of about 30 individuals and they had broken away from a church that had given up the authority of scripture. And they had been meeting for a couple years. They called themselves a church, but the truth is it was more like a glorified Bible study and they really had no idea how to lead a church, how to run a church. And so they did the most illogical thing possible. They hired me. Now, you gotta understand, I had a lot of book learning, and I had absolutely no practical application. I graduated from four years of college and finished four years of graduate school and was starting doctoral studies. Surely I knew something. But I didn't. You're about to be wowed. You're about to be impressed. Let me tell you about my credentials. I had never served on a board. What on earth do elders do anyway? I had only been to two elder meetings. And both of them, the elders argued over the color of the carpet and what it would look like when they put new carpet in. My internship, that should have taught me a lot, right? It was in a large Evangelical Free Church in Deerfield, Illinois. The very first Sunday of my six-month internship, the elder chairman got up and said, I've got bad news for you, church. Our senior pastor is emotionally drained, and we have given him a six-month sabbatical. My wife looked at me. I looked at her. And then he actually said, I kid you not, and by the way, if there's any interns in here, we're not paying you any longer. We don't have the money. And that's how I learned that my supervisor was no longer supervising me, and I was no longer being paid. And that was my internship. I supervised myself. Well, I've got to still know something about church, right? I had never read a bylaw. I had never read a constitution, much less written one. I'd never baptized anyone. I had been a groomsman in 13 weddings, but I had never done a wedding. I had never done premarital counseling, but Betty Ann and I had been in it twice. Uh, We knew that we needed lots of premarital counseling, so we had two pastors do it for us. Um, I had never read a church budget, but that actually didn't matter because this church had no money. And that was how we began this church. And I consider it my Brook Cherith experience. We're going to learn about the Brook Cherith today. It's a place where God put Elijah to grow Elijah, to mature Elijah, to make Elijah into what God wanted Elijah to be. It's out of the limelight. It's kind of in the back of nowhere and it's where God molded this man. This was my Brooke Cherith experience. And as I think about that experience, I recall that just up the road, there was a Pentecostal church. I had so much book learning, and their pastor hadn't been to college. Surely I knew more than he did, but his church grew and grew and grew, and ours in five years, grew to 115 people, including my two dogs. And I counted them every week. I didn't know what I was doing. And yet I look back at that experience, and I think these long-suffering people, I don't know how many mistakes I made because they didn't tell me. They were just gracious, mistake after mistake after mistake. The only thing I was qualified to do was to love them and to teach the Bible. Elijah had a brook Cherith experience as well. It was in a place called Gilead. I want to pick up in our text, and I want to read chapter 17, verses 1 to 7. Listen to God's word. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand... There shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook. I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is, east of the Jordan, And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Let's review our setting. We have this man named Elijah, a prophet that nobody has ever heard of. He suddenly appears on the scene. We have a new king. His name is King Ahab. And his wife, Queen Jezebel, a princess from Phoenicia, who comes to Israel, bags, baggage, and Baals. She brings the false Phoenician god of the weather. If there's one thing this god ought to be competent with, it's the weather. In fact, archaeologists have uncovered statues of Baal holding lightning bolts. And so when Elijah shows up and says that Baal is not in control, but Yahweh is in control, and it will not rain except at my word, and it doesn't rain for three and a half years, the gauntlet has been thrown down. Baal is not God. Yahweh is. Interestingly enough, Menander, in his book, The Acts of the King of Tyre tells us that in the ninth century BC, during the reign of King Ahab in the Middle East, he tells us that there was a three and a half year drought. We shouldn't be surprised by this. Over and over again, archeology span and history validate the full veracity of scripture. We see it over and over again. So here we have this man, Elijah, an otherwise unknown prophet. He shows up and he says something very stark, very strong to a very powerful king and queen. He says, it will not rain or do except at my word. Baal is not God, Yahweh is. It's an incredible act of faith. And I've got to believe that God was pleased with that act of faith, is I've got to believe God is pleased when we stand up and when we demonstrate faith for him. And I think to myself, okay, this is how, how we often think. Elijah had an act of faith. He stood up for God. He served God. Now what is God going to do for Elijah? We often think this way, but we should not that's a sense that God owes us. And so we think to ourselves, okay, what's going to happen to Elijah? Maybe, maybe he'll get a Tony Award. Maybe he'll be prophet of the year. Maybe he'll get a megachurch. Maybe God will expand his territory. God is going to do something great for Elijah. And instead, God sends Elijah to the brook Cherith for a year And then to Zarephath for two and a half years. God puts Elijah on hold for three and a half years. Now, if you're from Gary, Indiana, I'm just gonna apologize right off the bat. But it's something like this Suppose you grew up in Gary, Indiana, you finally escaped Gary, Indiana, you got a promotion, and wait for it, you have to move back to Gary, Indiana. It's kind of like the armpit of the Midwest. Well, that's Gilead. He's from Gilead. He becomes God's spokesperson. He preaches a message. He stands up for God. And God says, great job. Go back to Gilead to the brook Cherith. And we say, God, what are you doing? You're sidelining one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. And you're sending him back to Gilead. I can imagine what what Elijah might be thinking, or maybe not, I can imagine what I might be thinking. I might be saying, Gilead, come on, man, put me in, coach. I've got like 20 sermons floating in my mind. God, you gave me like one moment in the public. I got to say one line. It will not rain or do except at my word, and then you shelve me? for another 12 months, and then you shove me after that for another 24 months in Zarephath. Put me in, coach. I can do this. And God sends him to Gilead and then Zarephath. Now let's review the recreation and quality of life in Gilead. There's no direct TV. There's no cable. Uh, Don't even bother looking at your iPhone because there's no bars. There's no internet. There's no Bigby, there's no Starbucks, there's no vino latte, there is no patina. None of these things that we might think he deserves, none of them are available. But at least he has companionship, right? Verses 4 to 6 tell us that twice daily, a raven shows up to bring his breakfast and dinner. A raven. It's in the crow family. Big wings, up to 50 inches. A smart bird, it can mimic sounds, which means it's a chatterbox and it's annoying. And it's an unclean bird. You remember the kosher lines of the Old Testament? Listen to Leviticus 11, 13 and 15. And these you shall detest among the birds. They shall not be eaten, they are detestable, Every raven of every kind. And you say, whoa, that's a little harsh. Well, understand that we are in a kosher society. And if you're going to be kosher, you can't be around dead things. That makes you ceremonially unclean. And ravens are scavengers. We're in the middle of a drought. There are dead carcasses everywhere and they are using their beaks and their claws from dead carcass to dead carcass. And then twice daily, with the same beaks and the same claws, they're bringing Elijah his move, his food, bone appétit. This is often how God grows his people. God doesn't often grow us in the limelight, but in the school of the raven. Sometimes he shelves us for a while so that we grow in maturity and we grow in humility and we grow in utter dependence upon him. And we don't think that anything good happening is because we are really swell individuals, but we know and recognize that God is doing it through us. And we look upward, vertically rather than horizontally or worse, in a mirror at ourselves. So sometimes God puts us in the school, in the brook of cherith. We see it often in scripture. I think of Moses. Moses grew up in a palace and then he became a murderer. And God sent him out in the Midianite desert for 40 years. For 40 years, he has a brook cherith experience. For 40 years, He's out of the limelight. For 40 years, he's not doing public ministry. And after 40 years, he becomes the man that God wants him to be. And God has chiseled him. And God has shaped him. And God has created him. And now he's ready to lead the Jews out of Egypt and towards the promised land. I think of Joseph of Genesis. One of only several of which we have no really strong negative statement in all of Scripture. And yet we can read between the lines that maybe as a teenager, he was a little bit spoiled. It surprises me too. He's the baby. We're never spoiled. But he might have been a little bit spoiled. And what does God do? Remember, Joseph says, you meant for evil what God meant for good. God leads the brothers And the brothers do evil, but God utilizes their evil and he's sold into slavery and he's taken to Egypt and he falls into Potiphar's house and eventually he descends all the way into the archipelago, the the, the crime system, the correction system of Egypt of which you don't come out. And God chisels him at the brook Cherith And he becomes the second most powerful man in Egypt. I think of Paul. Paul, called Saul, had a Damascus road experience in Acts chapter 9. He comes to a saving knowledge of Christ. And by Acts 15, along with Peter, he's presiding over the Jerusalem council. He seems to be one of the two leaders of the church And we only go from Acts 9 to Acts 15 and God elevates him and promotes this murderer and that's what Paul was. He murdered individuals. He presided over the murder of Stephen in Acts 7 and he has letters from the high priest to arrest people to put him in prison and stone him to death and suddenly he goes from that to, to the leader of the church except from Acts 9 to Acts 15 is 13 years. We only know about three of them. Three in which he's led by God's Spirit out into the Arabian desert where God chisels him. And then there's ten missing years. Ten years we don't know where Paul is, but he's not in the limelight. We can assume he's at the brook Cherith, and God is taking this persecutor of the church and molding him into the man that would author, by God's Spirit, 13 books of Holy Scripture, plant 60 churches, and bring the gospel to much of Europe. He's at a brook-cherith experience, and it may be, it may be that some of us are in a brook-cherith experience where God has seemingly put us on the sidelines still serving, but Maybe not in the area we'd like, or maybe not in the limelight, or or maybe not in the public eye, but God is using us, and we're exactly where he wants us to be as he molds us and as he shapes us. That's a brook Cherith experience. There's so much in this text to consider. I want to offer four thoughts. First, I want us to notice that God promises food and water at the brook. Verse four reads, you shall drink from the brook and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. The place of God's provision is the place of God's appointment. Let's not miss that. It's at the brook that God provides. It's at the brook that God has appointed and the two overlap. What if he had not gone to the brook? There's no promise of provision. God says, you need to be in the place of my appointment before I'm going to provide the provision that I will graciously grant to you. It's kind of like what Matthew says in Matthew 6.33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and then all these other things will be added unto you. The added unto you is dependent on the seeking after God being in the place of his appointment leads to the place of his provision. This has so many applications. I think of a young couple. They're dating and they're engaged and they want a pastor to... Perform the wedding and to bless the marriage and to ask God to bless the marriage. And yet they're involved in immorality leading up to it. But the place of God's provision is the place of God's appointment. If we want God's blessing, we need to do what God has bid us to do. It might be an employer. An employer who says, you know what, I can do things by the book or or if I cut a few corners, if I fudge a little bit, if I make the product sound a little better than it is, everybody's doing it, that's the way to win at business. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then all these other things will be added unto you. It's tax time. Romans 13 says, render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. In other words, pay what you owe, not just what you can get away with owing. Colossians 3, 20 and 21 says that at-home children ought to honor their parents. If we want God's provision, we need to be doing God's appointment. In marriage, it says that We ought to have love and respect in Ephesians 5. And if we want that marriage to work and we want God to bless it, we need to be handling marriage the way that God has appointed it to expect that God may bless it. The place of God's appointment, the place of God's blessing, is the place of God's bidding. Second, and related, God's timing It's almost never my timing. It's almost never. Houston was discouraging those five years. They were discouraging. We didn't really have a very functioning church. Our music was, well, I'm tone deaf and it was bad we just didn't really have anything altogether we tried we worked at it and you know if god had consulted me i would have said i probably could learn these lessons in like i don't know a month god settled on 5 i probably needed 15 or 20 or 30 god's timing It's just not often ours. I think if God had said to Elijah, how long do you need to be at the brook Cherith? He might have said one day. But he was at the brook Cherith and in Zarephath for 1,300 days. He's God's prophet and he's put on the sideline after one message for the next three years. God's timing, it's just not our Timing. I wonder how long Joseph thought he needed to be in prison. I wonder how long Moses thought he needed to be in the Midianite desert. I wonder how long Paul thought that after his conversion on the Damascus Road, he needed to be sidelined until he had a public ministry 13 years later. God's timing is not our timing, and we need, I need to learn to say, Lord, Where you have put me is where I will be and I will serve you faithfully and in the interim I will trust that you will teach me the lessons that I need for the next stage of ministry that you may entrust to me. God's timing, it's not always ours. Third, how tempting to believe that God needs us. If you want to make God laugh, tell God he needs you. Here we have easily a top five prophet in the Old Testament. And God sidelines him for three and a half years. That's not really utilizing your assets very well from a human point of view. If he's a top five prophet, you would say we got to use him and use him and use him. And God says, no, of no. no. We're going to sideline the boy for three and a half years as I mold him, as I shape him, as I make him what I want him to be. Charles de Gaulle, you might know the name, he led the French resistance against Adolf Hitler in World War II. At the freedom of France in 1944, he led the Interim government from 1944 to 1946 until it became, at least for a while, a democracy. And you remember he made some really clever statements, one of which is this he said, Cemeteries are filled with indispensable men, so are pulpits, so are elder boards. So are homes, so are factories, so are neighborhoods. People who believe they're indispensable, but we're not. We're not. God took a top five prophet and sidelined him for three and a half years. When we talk about the characteristics of God, we use a word, attribute. God has communicable and incommunicable attributes. Communicable attributes are attributes we share with God. God is love and we have the capacity to love. That is a communicable attribute. Incommunicable attributes are attributes which we do not share with God. One of those is independence, God is independent. He does not need us. We are utterly dependent. We are in need of God. But in spite of the fact that God is independent, think of this God who utilizes us, who invites us as acts of worship to serve him. That's the kind of great God we serve. The final lesson we'll mention today is that sometimes God does things or allows things that seem like incalculable losses. But when we get to see them through the lens of eternity, we'll say, ah, that's what you're doing. I think verse 7 is just like that. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Unfair. Totally unfair, right? I mean, God has him as a prophet. God sends him on a dangerous mission. (coughs) Go speak to the king. Go speak to the queen. Put down their false god. And then God sends him on the sideline for three and a half years. God sends him to Zarephath for two and a half. And the first year, he's at the brook Cherith. And the only thing that's going on is he's got of water. I mean, that's all the boy's got. And then God dries up the brook. Totally unfair. But as soon as I say that, I have this sense of spiritual entitlement as though God owes me. And it's so easy. It's so easy for me to have spiritual entitlement. God allows something good in my life. God gives me something good. And then tragedy strikes and and it's gone. And I feel like I have the right to, to rail against God. And a well-meaning Christ follower comes up and puts his or her arm around me. And that well-meaning Christ follower says, it's okay to be mad at God. He can take it. Where in Scripture does it ever say that we have the right to be mad at God or to be entitled By God. Where in Scripture does it ever even hint at that? Oh, there are people who are mad at God. I think of Habakkuk. He built a rampart, got on it, and he said, God, I'm not coming down until you ask me, or until you explain to me why the more evil Babylonians have the right to ransack Israel. God, you answer me. It didn't didn't end well for Habakkuk. Job. Job suffered the loss of everything. And you remember, he starts asking God questions, and then God asks him questions. About 30-some questions, between 30 and 40 in the 38th chapter. And do you remember how many Job got right? Zero. And the point of the lesson is, Job, Job, Jeff, Jeff. You're living in a fallen world sin-tainted world and tragedy happens. And Jeff, you're not called to this life. You're called to that life. And when you get there and you see all that I have done, you will begin to understand what's going on. Now, you've got to walk by faith, not by sight. And that Is not an intent to be harsh in the midst of tragedy. My heart breaks when individuals have tragedy in their life. I think the heart of God breaks. But we do live in a sin-tainted world. And if we read the curse carefully in Genesis 3, we can expect death. We can expect toil. But as Peter tells us, this is not our home we are traversing through. If we know Jesus, our home is somewhere else and our hope is somewhere else. But in the midst of such loss, God reminds us that he will be with us. There's a beautiful passage in Isaiah chapter 49. I want to read verses 14 to the beginning of 16. But Zion said, in a moment we'll sing a song about Zion, Zion most of the time refers to Jerusalem. A couple times it refers to all of Israel, but mostly Jerusalem. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. We sometimes feel that way. The Lament Psalms feel that way. But if you think about the Lament Psalms, Pastor Andrew and I had a great discussion. It was very helpful to me. But the Lament Psalms don't challenge the goodness of God They bring our despair and our questions to God. And that's acceptable. We don't challenge God. We say, Lord, I'm broken. I'm hurt. I don't understand. That's what the Lament Psalms does. That's what's going on here. Zion says, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. We can feel that way. But this is the answer. Can a woman forget her nursing child? that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb. And if you nurse a child, you probably say, no. But even these may forget. There might, be, there might be somebody out there that is forgotten. Yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hand. And so when we go through difficult times, remember to look at the palms of your hands. God is not looking down from heaven saying, Jeff, oh, where is he? I misplaced him again. Where's the boy? My image, my likeness, my name is engraved on the palm of God's hand. I am the object as a child of God. I am the object of God's rapt attention. And in the midst of the Brook Cherith experience, I have the privilege to go to God and say, I don't understand. I'm discouraged. I'm despondent. But I'm going to walk by faith, not by sight. And in the midst of the brook Cherith experience, God, I want it to be short. But teach me. Teach me. And you say, well, lack of faith. You want it to be short. Isn't that part of the Lord's prayer? Lead us not into temptation is the word trial. Lead us not into trial, but deliver us. That's part of the Lord's prayer. We're saying, Lord, <laughs> I'd love for you to grow maturity in me, but not that much, because it it goes through trial, it goes through difficulty, and I know I'm weak. It's part of the Lord's prayer, and so we can say that to the Lord in a Brook Cherith experience, and yet in the midst of that Brook Cherith experience, we want to learn and be taught what God wants to teach and learn us. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that Elijah is a man just like us, as James tells us in the fifth chapter. And as a man like us, he has our same weaknesses, our same losses, our same trials and difficulties. And yet you used him, you molded him, you shaped him in the midst of those difficulties. Lord, we would not ask for those difficulties, but when they come, give us the strength to stand up under them, empowered by your Spirit, to go through them in a godly way, and to come out on the other side with greater strength of faith and commitment to you. Father, Thank you that in the Brook Cherith experiences, these trials are not wasted. They're just not only the result of the curse, but through them, you can mold us and shape us and grow us and mature us. You truly can work great out of the evil that befalls You never cause evil. You never will evil. But you can use it. And we praise you for that. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.